Imagining the Divine, Part 1. All right, this is Jack Donovan with PH2T3R, Pater, the Journal of Solar Culture. And I'm here with C.B. Robertson today, and we're going to talk about the shape of gods. Uh, how, how are gods represented? Uh, because there's, a, there's two different perspectives on it. And uh, I'm going to start out with a quote from Thomas Carlyle's on heroes, hero worship, and the heroic in history, which is a fantastic book. It's straight fire. I was just reading through it, and it was hard to even pick a quote because they're all there's so many great things in there that I think uh, pertain to solar idealism. But what I like about Thomas Carlyle's work, especially this first essay, and I had read it originally because it pertained to Odin and, and uh, the Germanic gods and so forth, is that it gets to a very preternatural, elemental sense of the gods. Uh, something that primitive man might have thought. Uh, that's a kind of pre-language almost. And so the quote that he I pulled up here is, to the wild, deep-hearted man, all was yet new, not veiled under names or formulas. It stood naked, flashing in on him there, beautiful, awful, unspeakable. Nature was this to man, what to the thinker and prophet it forever is, preternatural. And then skipping over to the next page, it said, the world which is now divine only to the gifted, was then divine to whosoever would turn his eye upon it. And the reason why I picked that quote is because that influenced my perception of the ideas of gods. And uh, as I explained in Fire in the Dark, I th I'd like to th think of gods as projections of our highest selves. Uh, and uh, we see what is a perfected, almost called platonic forms. Like what is the perfected version of me and that is what becomes our God. And that falls in line with his thesis in, uh, you know, the heroes and hero worship in sense of like men, man is a natural hero worshiper. Like we worship the best version of ourselves and we don't know how to do anything else. That's kind of what we do. And so I like that, but uh, it struck me while I was, while I was building Valdegang and while I was uh, creating pagan altars and so forth years ago, that the idea of, these concepts of nature being just by themselves self-evident in the world before they had names or, or personifications. And that struck me as being very powerful. And uh, so I, at, at that time, and I'm open to both sides and that's why we're having this discussion and uh, it, why it's interesting is that at that time I was thinking, you know, I like symbols better than, like statues in terms of in terms of perceiving the gods because it becomes less cartoonish and more like this is a bigger thing than I could possibly picture. This is a bigger thing that I could imagine. This is this is like just sea lightning and the storm. This is this is what that is. Uh, whereas you know, I was contrasting in my mind at the time, and this is not the only contrast or the only argument, but. Uh, in my mind, I was contrasting it with the idea of, you know, a silly little statue of Thor. You know, like, uh, you know, like here's a silly little Marvel character thing or like something that some guy carved up that's kind of cartoonish and, and goofy versus lightning. <laughs> you know, like there, there's just two, there's, there's just a huge gulf there. And the only other, the other thought that I had on that, and then we'll get into all the other stuff that we have to talk about, which is a lot is that as someone who has put out t-shirts and and put things out on the market and so forth i'm very hesitant always to put a guy on a guy in terms of i i as a man i don't want to wear a picture of another man on t-shirt i, I feel a, like that's weird even even though it's not shirt really, that's why i've always used skeletons and things like that because that's those are elemental and those are ideas once it gets to be a guy, I'm like, oh, I'm just kind of worshiping this guy, you know, like this, you know, this, this drawing of this cartoon or this guy. And then that becomes like a different thing. You know, I, I like to keep it a little bit more abstract. And, and 
There is one more thing that and we'll get into this maybe a little bit later too, is that one of the issues is that, especially looking at solar idealism in the, in the modern context, uh, once you put a face on something, you racialize it and also uh, tribalize it, which in his, historically would be perfectly fine because that's how religions were. They were all tribal. Uh, but in, you know, in trying to reach a kind of cross-cultural, cross-ethnic audience, the second you make God look like a Viking, then like he doesn't appeal to somebody, whereas the idea of him could appeal very much. And so it becomes kind of a, a, a push and pull there with those ideas. So uh, anyway, let's 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 get started and get into this. Uh, you had some things that you wanted to bring up. You know, it's like should, and the idea, the question, I guess, of the whole show is like, should we depict the gods or let them be symbols or ideas? And are symbols and ideas, as you just brought up before the show, symbols and ideas still just like personifying gods? Uh, so. Uh, or just, you know, are they human inventions? So uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts so far? Well, my first thought is I'm glad I took off my Che shirt before I got on here. Um, <laughs> but, but, I mean, when I was, um, you know, working out my thoughts on Christianity, um, which has a very interesting, uh, a few years ago, a very interesting sort of position on this whole thing. The Christian church was very um, iconoclastic. Um, for the first six centuries of its existence. And then a, a guy named John Damascus came around and wrote a, a, a polemic defending icons. And that stuck with the Catholic and Orthodox Church, and that was sufficient for them. I thought his argumentation was a little dubious, but um, the argument there was that, you know, and, and we see this in, in other religious traditions too, particularly in the, in the Nordic traditions, uh, he says God himself uses icons and makes images and um you know th there are a couple ways you could go you could say well god is an ideal that we should emulate or this is a special privilege that only god can have mm -hmm. now if you are you know lean in that you know carlylean odinic path you know odin is definitely more of an maybe part of an ideal to emulate not the whole thing critically um but, you know, his wisdom in the use of runes is something that is not, like, limited to him and you should avoid learning. Um, and, and you should avoid representation and poetry or anything. It's like, no, these are these are skills to take on just as you would take on the skills of Thor or Frey or, or these other deities. Yeah, he, he leaves us drops of, of meads of poetry as, as the eagles flying back up in the sky. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so if... The gods themselves use, you know, icons and images and representations, perhaps in the form of bird signs. What does a bird sign represent? Is that a is that a symbolic depiction of something that is to come? Um, is language itself something like that? Um, you know, that that's those are the sorts of questions that I think one could ask. And unfortunately, there's such a such a deep. Um, subject or just bringing up interesting and thoughtful questions is probably the best we can do. I don't know how, how, whether we'll be able to get it to any kinds of answers, but I think the main thing that people are concerned about is, is sort of like what you said, um, you know, are you, are you diminishing the grandeur of this elemental force, this, this force in the universe that is, uh, if not supernatural, then it, at least superhuman um, by depicting it in an anthropomorphized form, in a human form. And it's a, it's a serious concern because how things are represented sort of shape how we think about them. But the, but the contrary, the, the sort of opposite side of that might be, well, the human mind is designed to think socially. We pick up on social cues in other people especially faces and body posture and expressions. Um, and we're so attuned to that where we see faces where there aren't faces in clouds or in water or places. So um, if these deities, if these ideals, these spirits or forces or gods have some kind of character that it's important to know and to understand, then is the best way to 
depict that and to convey that going to be through an abstraction that people have to decode consciously in a very almost like mathematical symbolic way through language? Or is it going to be something that people immediately understand viscerally because that's how their brain works, i.e. through some kind of human or humanoid form. And maybe you do that directly the way that the Greeks often did, or maybe you do that in a kind of mixed way, well, the way the Hindu the Hindus did, where we're gonna we're gonna give him a human form, but he's gonna have black skin and eight arms. So you know he's not a human. <laughs> right. Uh, but you can still get a a a, a um you know an, an attitude and a persona uh, that you that you get visually from this and it's it feels like a tricky thing to balance um and it seems like it there are different levels of discourse with everything and you know mm -hmm. there's that as we could say there's this academic level of discourse that needs to happen and there's you know a popular level and all these things and one of the levels that this needs to happen on especially if you're going to raise children in a mythological frame is that, yeah, that, that, that first social thing that you're talking about, that social form, that personification of a god becomes very important because for you to explain this abstract concept to a small child is much harder than it is to, you and I as adults, we can sit about it and think about it like that and, and perceive it in that way. But uh, so many myths, if you really think about it, especially when you, I look at the, when I, when I look at the North myths now, I, uh, I mean, I'm like, they almost read like children's stories to me, you know, like, uh, and, and a lot of the myths are like that, you know, like uh, from a lot of cultures. And it, when we just read the Native American myths, I'm like, these are the myths that you, this is how you tell the children how the world works. And we grow up with these myths and, and then they become bigger for us, I think, and more complex as adults. But for children, you need a simple story. And, a, and this is what he looks like. And this is what, you know, like, so that they can picture it in their head. And I mean, you have kids, I don't have kids, but that seems to me that that's maybe the, a lot of the purpose of some of the personification and storytelling is to get to that simple core and communicate it quickly. Yeah. And, and also, I, you know, there's children, but there's, there's also adults too. And, and I've also often felt the need with solar idealism, like, you know, if you can draw the striker, then all of a sudden you have them on people's walls. And you have him on posters, and and they they can envision him as a uh, as a particular guy, yeah. and they can really connect with him. And that's what people do with with all these myths, you know. Like uh, all these guys have an exact idea of what they think Thor looks like, and they want to they that's who they connect with that 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 yeah. That form. And it's a and it's a tool. It's a way to keep these ideas close because if you have, you know a tome or a scroll that you have to unroll and read and understand all the philosophical uh, nuances and points that you can't truly know in a positive sense who this deity is only via negativa, what he is not thereby sort of triangulate his or its true nature in, in these very abstract concepts. And there's a conversation to be had about that in a minute. Um, like if your goal is to, in some sense, embody or remember this, you know, symbols or icons become a very convenient shorthand to, to keep that close uh, and keep that on your mind. And I mean, that's how that's how we use language. And that's how we have always used hieroglyphs and symbols. Uh, you know, this signifies that as a shorthand so that we don't have to re-explain everything in perfect detail. We can have maps instead of walking over the terrain every time. Um yeah. But, that's what I was talking about with runes last time. Like right. uh, last time we did this uh, with runes, it's like, well, that's a that's a little tiny picture for a big idea, and that's exactly. and that's what all these things really are, uh, and that's that's what our symbols are uh, for the order of fire and and uh, solar idealism and and you know even something like uh, picking up a vajra. Uh, I mean, okay, well now I'm holding thun a thunderbolt, and that connects me directly to this god that held a thunderbolt. And uh, this whole idea of holding a thunderbolt, and that becomes a, it's a bigger thing, you know. I, mm -hmm. And that's why it's exciting. That's what people like to hold spears and swords for the same reason. They they connect them immediately with myth, even though that uh, your chance of getting a sword fight is pretty low. 
Um, I mean, you could you could start one, but uh, <laughs> you know, your your chance of being called out into a sword fight, unless that's what you do, is pretty low. Yeah, I'm fairly slim. Um, but but going back uh, a, a minute to you know the the children's depictions, which is funny. I was reading um, a children's version of the Odyssey uh, just an hour ago, uh, where where no one got et by Scylla. Everyone survived in in this version, um, and and uh, Odysseus made it off Circe's island, uh, still still faithful, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and all this. But like you know, those kinds of details aside, you still have these these personifications, um, and it's easy to say, oh, that the anthropomorphizations are are a neat and kind way to present these things to to children. And the the more abstract, higher level concepts are more mature and uh, more adult. And um, I mean, but there is the question: you know, are conceptualizations and abstractions any less uh, human projections, less somehow less products of the human mind than an anthropomorphization in terms of how how directly we might convey or describe a thing. Imagine the, the process of an artist and how they might think of depicting um, an entity. Uh, the, the history of language is seems to be the history of increasingly precise uh, metaphors and the transformation of what were once metaphorical descriptions into... Um, reification isn't the word is it um the 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 what was originally a metaphor becomes understood as the thing itself so um in uh, in homer because i always my mind always goes there uh th these were like proto-indo-european people um being described as crossing a sea before they had a functioning language to describe sea travel they were that new to the water so some of the verbs that homer uses to describe the motion of the boats on the waves was um the the broad ridges of the sea they're using land adjectives you know step land adjectives and the motions of chariots as metaphors to describe the motion of boats and if you're trying to describe a god one would imagine the more from from that way that language works, the more direct um, depiction of the nature of a god would actually not be a conceptualization or an abstraction, but a personification, a, a depiction of some kind of character metaphorically through the I'm trying not to sound too much like Jordan Peterson here through the perceptive categories that our mind naturally uses to process what we see and experience in the world. And so um, given how secondary and even tertiary many of our concepts are when we talk about, uh, you know, uh, fill in the blank with any Greek root word, you know, a conceptualization itself is a good example. Um, that's not an immediately visual term. When someone says conceptualization, what do you think of? You know, it's it's a stand-in for a stand-in for a stand-in that we have developed an understanding of. But the, these are actually more human in their construction, often than the than the personifications, despite the personifications literally looking like people, which is an odd paradox to think about yeah absolutely and i, I mean i i don't know that we're capable of doing things that aren't human uh because that's the because <laughs> that's what we are uh you know you're, you're a human do something inhuman <laughs> yeah exactly how, how is that possible you know like yeah. it, it, it's like that's that's why i always hate the natural law arguments like you know, like how are you doing things that's not natural because it's impossible for you yeah. as you're a creature of nature uh, but uh you know but Nietzsche have some line where he said it was it was probably impossible for people to do anything that was harmful to the race to, to, to humankind 
anymore. Right. He was he was he was very critical of the English notion of morality, where morality is what is beneficial to the human race, and immorality is what we have collectively understood to be harmful to the human race. And he's like, really? <laughs> he's very very skeptical of that. Well, he just hated the English. But uh, <laughs> he did. He did. That too. That too. But, yeah, I mean, it, that sounds actually very much like our modern society is like, but that's used in propaganda sense. Like, th this is killing our species, therefore you have to do X, Y, or Z. Whereas there's some of that that is real, like, you know, the moment that they decided to make an atomic bomb uh, was, you know, probably not the best idea. Uh, but, uh, you know, especially when they weren't sure if it was going to set the atmosphere on fire or whatever. <laughs> but uh, that would be, I think, legitimately harmful to our species. <laughs> but, but, uh, but as far as like, you know, can we do things that are unnatural? I don't believe that's possible. We could do things that are unadvisable <laughs> and are not good best practices. Uh, but uh, we can't do it. it. It's impossible for us to. So we have to use our bodies and our, and our language and our capabilities as humans to, to describe the world and it's just, I think, I, I wouldn't care if either one are human. They're both human. Uh, it's more like what is, you know, I think, I don't know, what is preferable? Uh, you know, like what is preferable and what's most useful? And and like I said, like maybe you're explaining to children, like it has to have a shape. And, uh, you know, the danger, I think, with, you know, putting, making concept into cartoon characters I think is where it becomes, and especially in the modern world, I think that's where we go yeah. with it. Uh, yeah, Marvel becomes, movies. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Marvel movies. It becomes very cartoonish very quickly. And, you know, then it, that almost becomes childish, you know, like, uh, it, whereas, you know, but even, I mean, if you think about the Greek statues being painted, like they were very cartoony. Especially, I mean, if you think about it compared to like, we see them as those those white uh, pure things with like blank eyes, which makes them seem more like gods to me. Uh, yeah. But they oh, yeah. really didn't have those. Uh, they didn't see them that way. They just threw them at the mate. They made them people, you know, just like uh, the Marvel characters really. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the, the criticisms that Socrates gives in Plato's Republic of Homer's gods is, mm -hmm. is like the, the, they're described as almost like a soap opera. You know, Olympus is this this absolute. Hundred percent. There's nothing more not human, but almost almost ridiculously human oh, in yeah. their interactions with each other, and um, either either it's a caricature of extreme, um, uh, you know, blasphemy, or perhaps there's some kind of profundity hidden beneath. Uh, that uh, that caricature, and of course the Neoplatonists and the uh, and Christians, Augustine in particular, took the took the former form. Like like you know, our Christian God is superior because you don't even take your own God seriously. Then the Nietzschean view is that no, there there is a profundity to the to the image, to the superficiality. Um, and I, I love the way that Nietzsche, uh, th this one always stuck with me, just said, what if truth is a woman? Not even, not even a particular depiction, a generalized depiction of this concept, a personification of a concept um, that isn't even like a god exactly. You know, truth isn't a god per se. It certainly shouldn't be treated like a god if you're, if you're Nietzsche. Um, and he said this, it's this mercurial thing that has reasons for hiding her reasons. And, um, and it conveys the point and it conveys because what he says is that nature uses our instincts to accomplish its will. People having kids isn't beneficial to you as an individual. It's beneficial to nature's purpose. Nature uses your horniness to accomplish its ends. And if you perhaps knew the cost, you might not go through with it. Well, I mean, with a deeper understanding, you would go through it anyways, but, um, you know, it has reasons for hiding her reasons, he says. And that's so Nietzsche, because obviously he's speaking as a philosopher's philosopher. And, you know, as I mentioned last time, you know, whenever you talk about masculinity, you're talking about commanding something that's wild and chaotic and, and uh, mercurial and, and uh, unpredictable. Yeah. And what could be more 
like that than the truth to a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> and ungraspable, unfortunately, or yeah. fortunately, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's um, it, Nietzsche is a, an interesting one because I mean, we were we were talking about this with the group, and Nietzsche came up because you know we were talking about the difference between you know these these religious traditions that deeply oppose any form of not just anthropomorphization but representation of any kind mm -hmm. no, not just no statues but if you are orthodox jewish for example you can't even say yahweh you can only spell out the consonants between the vowels or however it works um to 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 indicate the direction of the thing that you're speaking of but not the name itself it's like bear for the Indo-European bear cults. You don't say the <laughs> the name. You only have the euphemism for fear of invoking the thing. But there's that on the one hand, this absolute opposition to any kind of anthropomorphization. And then on the on the other hand, there are Nietzsche's favorite people, the Greeks, with their very human-like depiction of these soap opera characters as their gods. And we thought, well, what what if the, the Nietzschean point here is that the people who embrace anthropomorphization and the humanization of these gods can do so because they love life and they love being human. Whereas these other traditions looking largely at monotheism, not exclusively, but largely at monotheism um, that oppose this, that reject icons, that reject depictions and stuff have a kind of, uh, hatred or disgust towards life and towards the flesh and especially towards sex and towards the imperfection of the human form. And they have a, a kind of preference for that platonic perfection and ideal. When you look at Islamic art, for example, and the insides of their, um, I'm forgetting the name, their temples, uh, it's all geometrical designs. It's all very like mathematical and um, a lot of math and arithmetic, arithmetic deriving its name from an Islamic scholar um, or algebra. I'm sorry, not arithmetic, algebra. There we go. Um, algebra. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, like comes from that in a, in a very, um, you know, idealistic way. But the, there seems to be a different relationship to the human body and to human life between the religions that are willing and even embrace anthropomorphic depictions of the gods versus those who reject them. Or at least that was an idea that we were toying around with. And, and as a lover of Nietzsche and a lover of the phrase despisers of the body, uh, which encapsulates so much, especially even up until now, uh, you have you know, the transhumanists are the, the new despisers of the body. And that's just the, yes. the next iteration of this, this whole trend towards uh, we hate all earthly things. We want to transcend humanity. Whereas, yes, I mean, I think, you know, our, our thing and, and you know, solar idealism and, and just generally this vitalism that I think a lot of us are attracted to um, is very much like, yeah, enjoy your body, enjoy your life uh be healthy be beautiful uh you know like uh that and to imagine that that's possible i mean i think you know it feels like a lot of these ideas are come up with by ugly people uh but uh you know like i feel like if you have handsome guy privilege like why would you hate your body uh but uh you know it, and, and and people who are athletic and people who you know use their body and, and are like impressed by what they can do and so forth i think are very uh much more life loving. And, and it, it feels the way you're describing it. It also feels very Mediterranean. Yeah. Uh, like, like, Hey, let's have some, uh, <laughs> like some wine on the, on the beach. Enjoy <laughs> life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and just enjoy life. And it, it, like, it, and, and also the drama of, of, you know, of all the drama of that, you know, it, yeah. it goes the, with it. There's this delicious Joseph Campbell quote about how life is like a, is like an opera except that it hurts and there are parts that are painful uh, but your job is to play those roles and to play them decently and there is a way to enjoy 
And here we're going to Albert Camus territory to enjoy the bad stuff as well as the good stuff, to see that as a challenge to overcome. And I think the thing that makes Nietzsche so um, so likable after you know digging a little into his biography is that Nietzsche did not have handsome guy privilege by any stretch of the imagination. And he, he struggled uh, not just with ladies, but with health more generally and, and sickliness. And his understanding of the effect of sickness and uh, that kind of misfortune on philosophy, you get the sense that he, it comes from personal experience and, and introspection. But he was somehow able to overcome that in a way that I think very few thinkers are, are truly able to do. Um, that, that is such an important point uh, about Nietzsche. And, and I mean, I like to think I do this about with certain things as well. There's this idea that especially it bugs me. I see it online a lot that uh, you have to embody the form to speak about it or to say that it's good. You have to embody the form just to say what is good. And that's, so bad because it means that you have to it means that you that only people who embody the form can agree on what's good it's uh, like that's yeah you know, like rather it's, than it's almost it's almost useful is the problem because it's actually yeah. not a bad heuristic sometimes but it's it, it brings the double trap of a oftentimes the people who best embody the form are the worst at explaining it because mm -hmm. they're naturals and they, they have no idea how they do it they just are Exactly. Uh, and if they if they give that's what happened advice, with masculinity for many years. Yeah. Like, uh, like who, who was talking about it? Nobody. The guys who were good at it were just good at it. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll give you advice that totally will not work for you. Right. And right. and and conversely, you know, there are people who are outsiders, who are not naturals, who had to spend a lot of time working through it. And oftentimes they they don't get through it and they they become bitter and resentful. But right. there's that, Nietzsche's it, the whole thing that gets to resentment is yeah. that his, he, he really recognizes that resentment is there and he sees it in himself, the temptation, I think, of resentment. And or I'm guessing that, I mean, you know, I don't know, him, but uh, I'm guessing that he sees him in himself, the, the temptation towards resentment and he fights it. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, there's this beautiful line in um, Thus Speaks Zarathustra mm -hmm. where he's talking about the tarantulas and how their whole notion of justice is vengeance yes. might have been inspirational to me in other domains. Um, but he says, he, he says to me, uh, you know, what was the line? He says, um, escape from resentment is a rainbow after long storms and is the, the path to the highest heights. Um, but the tarantulas would have it otherwise. We, you know, we, what justice means to us is to fill the world with the storms of our vengeance and, and to go from there. So, so, you know, escaping the, 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 the contagious poison of resentment was Nietzsche's like whole project. Yeah. That was, that was his whole, and, and there, something felt very personal in that, um, sure. especially as it pertains to Christianity, the, the fun fact with Nietzsche to me was that, you know, for all of his, you know, vitriol and even hatred that he heaps on Christianity. His father was a Lutheran pastor who died. Yeah, he went, he went to school originally to be a pastor. That was. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and Nietzsche and, and well, Nietzsche's father, the, the elder Nietzsche, I suppose died when Friedrich was like six. Yeah. And the, the accounts, I read said that Friedrich was was actually very fond of his father and looked up to him, mm -hmm. and perhaps there might have been some some idea that the, the his beliefs about the the weakness and even the biological weakness, the tendency, the slave morality tendency over time of Christianity, might in some way be to blame for his father's death. So so maybe some hatred of Christianity came from that, but he never, but he he he, for all of his serious criticisms. He never resented Jesus. You know, he even had a kind of respect. He, he saw him as this kind of Zarathustra-esque character who gave a kind of Buddhist-like message. Uh, he's like, oh, that's interesting. There's good points and bad points. Paul's different. Paul, I can see my own resentful tendencies in Paul. 
I can see it. it takes one to know one and I can see it. <laughs> yeah. So there's uh he's an interesting character, but but his his very insightful view of the relationship between philosophy and the body, I think uh could could very plausibly be tied to bring it back to our ostensible topic to to anthropomorphic versus um absolutely iconoclastic conceptions of, of ideals and the gods. Yeah, no, I mean, and I, I like your point on that too. I mean, I like the idea of, of uh, representing the gods as having beautiful, perfect forms, you know, as the, the Greeks did, uh, you know, is represents that you think, you know, highly of the human form and highly of living and, and of life. Yeah. And so that's definitely... You- but if you don't like the human form, then maybe your view of the Greek depictions of the gods will also not be so high because right. they are merely yeah. human. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very human. And uh, yeah, I'm like, yeah, like you said about the opera and the drama and everything about the Greek gods, that's definitely all there. And that's that's always what I liked about them. Uh, you know, like that specifically that like they're, you know, they're, they're, they're deathless, but they, uh, they act just like, you know, they're on a soap opera. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that was one of the, everyone, you know, craps on, was that like 2002, 2004 movie, Troy, um, oh, yeah. for being, it, it's, it's not the Iliad, you know, it, it kind of tries to loosely follow the story. It's its own thing. If you don't view it in relation to the Iliad, you'll have a better time. It's just a fun action movie, but it did have some good lines. And, um, one line where Brad Pitt says, you know, the gods envy us because we are mortal and everything we do is more beautiful because we're doomed. You know, we'll never be here again. That is not a Homeric line, but it, but it could be like that. That is, that is exactly something that Homer might have said. Um, right. And it very much matches sort of Nietzsche's conception of the Homeric embrace of the beauty and, 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 um, wonder of life in the birth of tragedy uh, where he he deals extensively with the the very uh black pilling wisdom of silenus where the the old centaur says you know to king midas i think he says you know uh mortal who's you know born to suffer and toil you know best of all would to have been never to have been born but second best is to die and die soon and like that's that that is actually the view of a lot of people within a uh you, you know if, if you hate life if you are a negative utilitarian i forget the name of the main guy in that world where it's like you know on the balance suffering outweighs pleasure so it's best if people don't live um uh, there are, you know, the, the, those kinds of negative, uti- I'm misusing the phrase negative utilitarian, but um, that kind of utilitarian, there are uh, certain kinds of Buddhists that go that way. And like you mentioned before, transhumanists, yeah. I think anti-natalists are very, very that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, a, and just, it goes back to the whole, you know, Buddhist look at the world you know, which you yeah. know, other Buddhists who will dis- disagree with this, of course, but the uh, idea that life is suffering. Right. And and, uh, and, yeah. and Jordan Peterson says the same thing. Life is suffering and yeah. the best you can do is find meaning in the suffering, which is, I guess, if you're depressed, maybe somewhere to start. It, it's terrifically masochistic and like a little wild. bit. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's, I mean, life is beautiful. But, <laughs> but what's like, wild there's, is there's a lot of things that are cool in the world. Oh, yeah. But what's wild is these are it's on the one hand it's very hard to connect with for me personally yeah but at the same time you can look back and see books like ecclesiastes mm-hmm. or the iliad or gilgamesh where people are contemplating these questions would it have been better to have never been born there's something that the oldest book in the bible i think job um which is a very pagan like book as is ecclesiastes Ecle- you will not find a more nihilistic book than ecclesiastes the, the the whole book is vanity of vanities everything is vanity there's no point to doing anything 
I acquired all the wealth. I acquired all the women. I tried pleasure. I tried hard work. I tried business. I tried all the things and nothing mattered. Um, there is no point to anything. So how do you live a good life when nothing matters? There's nothing new. Uh, everything will be as it always has been. Your life doesn't matter. You will die. And you see this theme keep popping up. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, I know his voice. That's the dragon. And it's it is fascinating to see yeah. how how different cultures answer this because because that's that's Silenus as well. Yeah, you know, um, and how you answer the dragon seems to shape the rest of the the religious feeling um, in a, in a given tradition. It seems. The Greeks had a different answer to it than the Buddhists have. The Buddhists are like, oh, we shall become one with the dragon. And then it's not a problem anymore. <laughs> uh, or you know, I'm probably being unfair. Um, yeah, we're going to get like Buddhist hate mail. Here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, That's not what we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we know. We know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like the you know, Nietzsche's view of the Greek answer is the, the fact that the gods themselves desired to live out the drama of human life spoke to the value of mortal life and its increased value because of its scarcity, perhaps. And that, that's what makes that line from Troy so, you know, d despite all the just, just absolutely horrific archery and just terrible combat and terrible outfits and all that and like okay acting but mostly not great um there's still one great line <laughs> um that makes it perhaps worthwhile and 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 relevant to these broader discussions about the actual ancient greek stuff um and and the sumerian stuff that we see in like gilgamesh and and elsewhere yeah well and the message was of that was to go and enjoy your life yeah, uh, Epic of Gilgamesh was like, the, like. Well, that's what the woman says. Yeah, yeah, that's what the woman says. Well, well you know, and normally I don't yeah. listen to women, but in this particular case, <laughs> uh, we'll we'll entertain that because that was kind of the balancing fact. Because like, no, you're going to die after his quest to to not die. Uh, you know, if I he talks to this woman and and you know, she's like, no, there's there's a lot of living to do, essentially. You know, there's there's a lot to enjoy about life, so you should do that. Yeah, and, uh, and that's and you know, and you could take that into into a direction that it would go down into a road of like pure hedonism. Um, and I, I've yeah. I've known guys who've said that to me. I could think of one that I'm not going to mention, but uh, uh, it, it, it specifically, but like uh, you know, people who say that you know life is experience. And I'm here to experience things, and uh, and that's not. I mean, that's not wrong. It is experience, uh, yeah. but uh, I'm here to you know rack up like you know interesting experiences. Yeah, I mean that's a that's one frame, and and it's mm -hmm. like you say, it's not wrong. But how you frame what life is, and there's probably an infinite number of ways to frame it in a way that is factually correct, but will guide you towards different experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes you know a little bit of foresight to anticipate what those experiences are going to be like later on in life. I mean, I. I mean, one one book to, to keep it nominally on the subject of anthropomorphization that uh, tries to address this question of how do you live a good life mm -hmm. um, is Plato's Republic, and in Plato's Republic, the dragon is a uh, a young sophist named Thrasymachus, who says justice is just the will of the stronger, um, or the interest of the stronger, I should say. Basically, there is no justice. So the best in life is to tyrannize over others. And, um, but that conversation is actually preceded by a conversation with an, with an older man who Socrates is speaking with named Cephalus, who's, um, you know, it, Socrates is asking him, what's it like being old? How, how is it, how, how are you doing now that you're kind of, you know, on death's doorstep, you know, and, and Cephal says, oh, you know, it's not so bad. Um, you know, I, uh, people say, oh, you have it good because you're wealthy. And it's true that wealth hurts, but not, uh, wealth isn't bad, but not for the reasons people think it is. And 
It says with, you know, now in my old age, the things I did in my youth hit me differently. And the stories that I used to laugh away as silly, I now, you know, keep me awake at night. And the true value of money in my old age is that I can die without debts, which is a very, like, it's a different experience. And I think the people who say, well, life's about experiences and I'm here to rack up as many experiences as possible in a very hedonic fashion. Um, I mean, you can read basically any wisdom tradition anywhere and says, yeah, there are, there are negative experiences that follow from that, uh, from that path. You can take it, but, um, you know, it's, uh, that that is the uh, I don't know how to say this. Maybe 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 to borrow some anthropomorphization from before the the dragon, which is a funny anthropomorphization when we think about it, um, luring you to uh, you know astray for who knows what reason. Yeah, I mean, I always think of the dragon. I mean, I was going to say if we wanted to really talk about anthropomorphization, uh, we could. Uh, uh, actually try and sketch that out like what do these characters yeah. look like well, well how would you, know, you talk like, about they? how would you talk about the dragon of negation which we all i think we all kind of understand i think i think i hope anyone listening to this will will know the force we're talking about how would you talk about that force without personifying it oh well i mean i would i mean uh Perfect example, actually, is I, I bring it up all the time, but the never-ending story, the nothing, uh, is what it would be. But the I nothing, mean, and then it has, and then the wolf speaks for the nothing, right? And the, and the wolf is actually would be the dragon, it, like the, he's the analog to the dragon in our story, or mm. our story really being yeah the oldest story of human kind. I mean, because the dragon is obviously not my invention; it's uh, everybody. You know, it's it's yeah. and and uh, and all the other. There, there's always a dragon, and it's always yeah. you know associated with uh, or the the worm with the tail in its own mouth, the Ouroboros. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and that's a great symbol. And I mean, I, I didn't understand. It teaches you a lot about things, and the Ouroboros is actually a great symbol for exactly what we're talking about. It's this kind of a forbidden knowledge of that that everything eats itself and becomes its own thing. You know, everything. Well, it's is, the yeah, not, not to to stay with Christianity this long, but it's also the snake in the garden. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I mean that's obvious one. Yeah, I mean it's the same symbolism because it's it it's visceral. Uh, yeah. but but how you know, do you visceral explain response to snakes uh, for obvious reasons? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, because they're dangerous and also they're they're hidden and they can scare us and like uh, you know surprise us. Yeah, and uh, you know humans have a kind of visceral response to that naturally. And uh, you know all the symbolism is there is this thing that's in the shadows that's bite is hidden and can, can come out from nowhere and get you, and uh, I mean that's what we're really talking about. You know we're talking about this scary thing that is really a you know stand in for death. I mean yeah. that's what the dragon really is is stand in for death. I mean that nothing really matters is death. It's the death of all meaning. Yeah. Well, it's I think it's I think it's more than death isn't it or i mean death is inevitable the well, yeah, dragon, I mean, the dragon yeah. isn't just saying you're going to die no no the no dragon I mean, that's, seems to be saying you're going to die so you may as well get it over with yeah or that just nothing matters so you're mm -hmm. going to die so nothing matters i think is more what the dragon said like nothing matters you're going to return to dust nothing like meaning meaning is meaningless uh, yeah, like, and so that's, I think really what the dragon is saying, like return to, uh, return to the source, return to dirt, yeah. uh, because, and that's, yeah, that, that's really what chaos is return to the undifferentiated but, world. And, and he, he, this is, I think to me, the value of at least sometimes having anthropomorphization on the table, because how could we speak, you know, of a concept of, or a symbol as having an intention which I think it clearly does. The, the dragon does seem to be a force. It isn't just empty space in the universe beyond, you know, the asteroid belt, uh, out in the the universe. It, it is a, it is a direction and an intention that seems to exist in the human species. 
and in the world. And I, I don't know how you would talk about that, um, the idea that pops up from time to time without just, personification. I'm cycling through like psychological concepts and, and thinking about like the de- the Freudian death drive uh, mm. concept and also uh, us, yes. and also Jungian shadow. You know, and, and I don't know how close it would be to Jungian shadow, but sometimes I could see that. You know, like as far as like, or just the id bubbling up, but that's a little too simple, simplified, I think. But yeah, this, this yeah. is the idea that, well, it's this perception of truth. You know, and that's why it's always like, you know, yeah. the Orboros and all these things is like secret knowledge for like alchemists and philosophers and all that, uh, because it is the deeper truth. It's not wrong. Like, eventually your name will be forgotten. Eventually, you know, things won't matter in the way that they matter yeah. now. You know, eventually you will die. Eventually all these things, and they're not wrong. The, but, the, the premise is not wrong, but, yeah. but the conclusion that they try to, that the dragon tries to, to argue from that true premise, right. um, there has to be some answer. There has to be some way to say, no, that conclusion I should kill myself. I should act as if nothing matters. I should, you know, follow Marquis de Sade or, or whomever um, because nothing matters. It does not follow from there is no objective meaning. True premise, not necessarily true conclusion. Right. Um, but how you cut the those two points seems to vary um, from culture to culture. And that's, well, I guess that's sort of part of the project of the Order of Fire. Um, yeah, and and this whole exploration. Absolutely. Well, you have like this idea that I mean, we're perceiving that truth, right? That that we we know that that's real. That that it doesn't follow that you have to just be descended into complete nihilism and and whatever. And that's what we're saying, mm-hmm. right? It, it does. It, yes, that is true. Uh, that what's the, what the dragon is saying is not wrong. And it, as a species, we've always known this. You know, like, we, it's not like we do. People people were much closer to death than we are now. And that's why, you know, like in the old, yeah. in the ancient world, everything is about luck and whether the gods are mad at you or not or whatever, because it just might be your day. You, you know, like, yeah. and it still might just be your day. I could, you know, get in a car accident tomorrow. But, like, it's, I think life was much more hanging on a thread um, in earlier times than we feel it today. So I think people always felt that, you know, like it could be over tomorrow that, you know, like I think they were aware of this and like, Oh, well, grandma's dead or like my brother's dead or whatever. Like right now, like that, he, he now knows that nothing happened, you know, like he lived and well, there he is. And we, we see this as humans and there is the res- possible response of, well, that, you know, fuck it that like let's the you know like let's you know do coke and fuck hookers or like uh or whatever you know yeah. and uh or you could do that or you could take you know the opposite approach that you know it's kind of you know whatever vitalist or or uh you know the solar idealist approach that we okay well you're here for x amount of time so while yeah. you live shine like do something yeah. make use of your life like do something that you're proud of. And what's on the other side of that disillusionment? Because it seems that so often the the words of the dragon or the snake, which is, you know, this questioning critical deconstruction of the worldview that gave meaning to your existence before. Mm-hmm. Like when a worldview collapses, it can feel like your whole world collapsed. But, you know, there is existence on the other side of that and that that's a whole new exploration you can go on on the other side of maybe to bring it back to anthropomorphization the collapse of our conceptualizations and our depictions and images of the gods and the powers and our ideals that be because those are perhaps also at the end of the day false they are not true. And that includes, that includes, by the way, the depictions of the gods that define themselves as truth itself. That is also false. Um, but like th- th- that doesn't mean that they aren't worth employing and, and even living by. 
Um, and, and this is why I, I loved uh, Greg Naj's depiction, uh, description of myth, not as, not as stories we believe in, but stories to live by where, you know, the value is not the truth, but the beauty of the story um, conveyed there. And um, like the, the, I, I think that's where Nietzsche was getting to when he was beginning to dismiss the value of truth and say, maybe truth is like a woman who has reasons for hiding her reasons. And maybe, maybe it isn't the best thing for us to be like Egyptian youths always trying to pull the covers off the statues and to uncover everything. Maybe we can just make do with the image um, without delving down below. Yeah, that also gets it. I, I won't uh, foreshadow that too much, but this, the essay that you're working on, uh, uh, the idea of there being no promises, uh, <laughs> and like, <laughs> like that's that's. I'm very interested in that just because, uh, uh, you know, I think it fits into everything we're talking about. But you uh, magically uh, brought me around full circle to another Thomas Carlyle quote that I read earlier today, as you talked about times of uh, you know confusion. And so forth. Um, he was talking about it too. And what did he write this in? Probably like eighteen ninety something. Sounds uh, about right. It sounds about right. But uh, you know, and and that gives us a little perspective as well. Uh, but and he was talking about obviously hero worship as as a central theme in human life, as uh, worshiping something better. Just... And, he, and he says. Ah, does not every true man feel that he is himself made higher by doing reverence to what is really above him? No nobler or more blessed feeling dwells in man's heart. And to me, it is very cheering to consider that no skeptical logic or general triviality, insincerity or aridity of any time and its influences can destroy this noble, inborn loyalty and worship that is in man. In times of unbelief, which soon have to become times of revolution. Much downrushing, sorrowful decay and ruin is visible to everybody. For myself in these days, I seem to see in this indestructibility of hero worship, the everlasting adamant lower, lower than which the confused wreck of revolutionary things cannot fall. The confused wreck of things crumbling and even crashing and tumbling all around us in these revolutionary ages will get down so far, but no farther. It is an eternal cornerstone from which they can begin to build themselves up again. That man, in some sense or other, worships heroes that we all of us reverence and must reverence and must ever reverence great men. This is to me the living rock amid all rushings down whatsoever. The one fixed point in modern revolutionary history, otherwise as if bottomless and shoreless. What a white pill. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> very white pill. Like it's, it's only going to go so far and then men have to look upward again. It's, it's the, the white pill of all white pills. It's, it's the, the, their, you know, this is our inescapable nature to to find our way out of this you know depression of the the bottomless pit of logic and to find beauty and hero worship again absolutely absolutely yeah. so that that is that's is a, a, a nice little bow on this <laughs> discussion so i'm going to leave it there we are going to do yeah. part two and talk to ed uh ed Haman, our uh vedic expert uh, we, we're going to bring him in and talk a little bit because he's been kicking this idea around a lot uh, in his uh, group, his, his fire within the order of fire. And uh, he's also, you know, has some ideas and some background from the Vedic material that he wants to bring into the discussion as well. So uh, whether it's you know, the next podcast or the podcast after that, we're going to hit uh, this idea of you know, anthropomorphizing gods or, you know, the shapes and, and of gods again with Ed. So, Everyone, thank you for joining us. Mr. Robertson, always lovely talking to you. And uh, stay solar. Stay solar. Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com. <laughs>